Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Whenever my ministry seasons get tough and they're less encouraging than others, which, praise the Lord, that is rare here at this church, my mind reverts back to those letters of encouragement, and God uses those letters to bring nourishment to my spirit. And every single letter holds a special place in my heart, but one letter stands above the rest, and that letter was written by Ray Clifford. I was first introduced to Ray when I was in middle school, and he was a, he was a mess. He was recently saved, and he had a hunger and a thirst for God, but it wasn't uh, that polished Christianity that we're used to now, right? It's, it was raw and real, if I can put it that way. Experiencing many difficult decisions in his life before Christ, he had a heart for young people. And so he would go and he would find young people at an early age and he would take them under his, heart, uh, under his wing and he would show them the truths of the word of God in the best way that he knew how, not being a trained theologian, but just living it out in his own very life. With this passion and this motivation, he would take men and, and young ladies, but uh, mostly men in that personal relationship, and he would pray for them, and he would challenge them to be more like Christ. And when I was in seventh grade, I entered into the youth group, and that time Ray was a youth leader, and I spent all of my years from seventh to twelfth grade under the godly influence of Ray Clifford. He was more than a mentor. He was a close friend. After graduating from college, the Lord brought me back to my church home, which is a totally different story. My, my plan wasn't to go back to Pennsylvania, but God had different plans in the business that I was hired in. And I jumped right in serving in the singles ministry. I had been, or I was dating my wife at that time, but she was still in school. And so I was like, I need to plug in somewhere. And so I started serving in the singles ministry. And Ray, of course, was overseeing the ministry at that particular time. And I had the opportunity to sit underneath of him once again. Again, he was not a pastor. He was not theologically trained, but outside of my family, Ray has been one of the biggest spiritual influences of my life growing up. On the night of my pastoral ordination, uh, just, uh, just a couple of weeks before our family moved to North Carolina to plant the chapel, Ray Clifford wrote me a letter. And this letter serves as a spiritual encouragement to me, even though Ray and I are no longer physically together. And the letter starts off like this. Pastor Joyner, I believe that it was somewhere around December of 2004 that I drafted a similar welcome to the ministry pastor joiner letter to your father. Guess I never dreamed I would need to write a second one for PJ2. Unfortunately, I was unable to attend the service on Sunday night, but I want you to know that as we sat as a family and watched the live feed, Brandon, I cannot believe how fast life has passed us by. And it seems like yesterday that you and I were on the team helping the widow's activity in Gilbertsville. Do you remember digging the trench, mixing the concrete, and pouring it into the hole in order to replace the mailbox pole for D. Ludman? I can still remember working beside you guys and thinking, these two kids don't have to be here on their day off from school, but here they are. What a servant's heart. Um, honestly, we just we didn't know any better, so we went on the activity. <laughs> As time progressed, do you remember sitting outside on a cold, rainy spring day in the Bronx watching the Yankees play? You and Eileen were dating, and I remember listening to you recount the struggles of long-distance love affairs and how much you miss seeing her. Glad to see that those days are long gone. From a single businessman to a married man in the ministry and father, his thoughts are higher than ours, aren't they? Hey, Eileen and B, thank you for being faithful and enduring some difficult ministry days as good soldiers. I know the life that you and Eileen have been obedient to follow brings with it the roller coaster ride of a lifetime. 
And I'm sure that some ministry days will be difficult beyond words, but in the end, the victory is certain, and the struggles are worth the price of admission. The storybook you wrote, I'll not soon forget. We will be sad to see a part of our church family and friends head off to Tar Heel land, but we're excited for you guys and crazy confident that your best ministry days lie ahead of you. Hey, B, thanks for showing up on a cold, rainy day to watch our son run. You won't soon know what that meant to our family. This letter is special to me because of the personal relationship that I had with Ray and the personal investment that he made in our life. That letter contains thanksgiving and encouragement. I didn't read the entire thing, but a good portion of it. I give that as an example because the book of 1 Thessalonians is exactly that from Paul to the church of Thessalonica. The book of 1 Thessalonians, in fact, was the Apostle Paul's very first letter that he ever wrote to any church or any letter, period. In fact, the historians believe that that was actually one of the oldest letters in the entire New Testament coming before many of the Gospels that were written. So the Apostle Paul had no knowledge, no example, no reference point of any other letter to write. Or how do I word this in a theological way? Some commentators actually refer to 1 Thessalonians as an experiment in Christian writing. And if you were to go through the letter, you would quickly see that this letter was not like Galatians. Galatians was written basically just to say, church, you are acting like fools, knock it off in a loving way. It wasn't written um, uh, like the, the letter of, of, of the first Corinthians, which I made a, I would say it's a mistake. My very first years of preaching as a church, I started going through first Corinthians. Probably not the best to go through from an expositional study on a Sunday morning when it starts talking about infidelity and marriage and all those other things that that church had complete great problems with. It wasn't like those letters. First Thessalonians was a great letter of love that he wrote to this church. This church that was young, this church that was struggling um, in their faith, honestly. And so he writes this letter as a way to encourage them. This letter was indeed written by Paul, but Paul was assisted by Silas and Timothy. Matter of fact, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians with me. And we're going to reference here this morning as we kick off this series. But it was written by Paul, but he indicates that he had help in writing this letter as he says in verse 1, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians. Silas and Timothy, also Silvanus being the same person there, were with Paul when they first traveled to Thessalonica. So they were both familiar with the Thessalonians and the needs in which that church had. And so they assisted Paul in writing this letter. The church of Thessalonica was founded in roughly A.D. 50. And so just uh, a couple of decades after the ascension of Christ, during Paul's second missionary journey, we see that these events that transpired, founding of this church, uh, they're given here somewhat, but they're really described in Acts chapter 17. So if you want to hold your fingers here, flip back to Acts chapter 17. We're going to reference that from a historical standpoint as we see exactly the events that occurred in forming this church. Because it's important for us to understand that from the context, but we can also see ourselves in this church as well. The ministry in Thessalonica comes right after the challenging ministry in Philippi. The Apostle Paul um, goes to Philippi, and of course they're imprisoned for their faith, and the Apostle Paul is there with Silas, and they're in prison, and they're singing hymns, and they're singing psalms together. But during that particular time, while they're in prison, there's a great earthquake that came, and it shook everything loose, and the Philippian jailer comes, and he goes in there, and he realizes or at least he doesn't see Paul and Silas. He believes that they have escaped. Well, underneath the Roman law, if the Philippian jailer, or any jailer for that matter, allowed them to escape, the 
the Romans would kill the jailer and failing in their job. And so Paul and Silas are sitting there, and uh, they, they see what's happening with the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer is at the end of his rope. He's at the end of his life. He believes that he has nothing else living for him other than the fact that he's going to be killed by the Romans anyway. And so he takes out his sword, and he is about to take his life. In the middle of his attempting of his suicide, the, uh, of the apostle Paul calls out and says, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. And then he proceeds to share the gospel. Well, the Philippian jailer comes underneath conviction, and he receives Christ and eventually influences his family for that as well. That is the tail end of the church plant in Philippi. The Apostle Paul is released, and they're released from prison, and then they go on from there into Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica itself was, or is, or was, the capital of the Roman Empire. It was the capital of Macedonia, the urban center of the Roman Empire. And with that being said, it did not have a strong Jewish foundation. It had a very strong Greek culture. It had a population of about 200,000 people, which is a little bit smaller than Durham, and then about three times the size of Chapel Hill. And so if you kind of give you a little bit of perspective there. It was a booming commercial center that was located at the crossroads from the Great North or the Great Road from the North and the main East-West trade route. And so all these roads or these two main roads intersected together, and Thessalonica was located right in the middle of that, making it an extremely culturally and ethnically diverse community. If you were to look at it from a church planning strategy guide, it would have been perfect to plant a church, like perfect strategy. While entering in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas began their ministry by preaching in the synagogues. The scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 17 and verses 2 through 3 that Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned from them or with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead saying, This is Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And as a result of Paul's bold proclamation of the gospel and of course in the ministry of the working of the Holy Spirit, Many people were saved. Look at verse 4. It says that some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So you had far more Greeks or Gentiles, we would like to say, than Jews that received Christ. And so majority of the members of the church at Thessalonica were not Jewish. They were Greek. They were Gentile in nature. And so to kind of give you a perspective of how this church formed, they continued to grow. Now, the scriptures seem to indicate that they were only there for three weeks, but based, based upon that comment in Acts chapter 17, verse 2, that he preached for three weeks. But really, he was there, as some scholars estimate, historians estimate, about four to six months to really formulate that church. He wanted to be there longer, but eventually an angry mob ran them out of town. They could not effectively minister any longer, and so their time in Thessalonica was cut short, and Paul was distressed to leave his congregation so quickly, so abruptly. He believed that they were not established well yet for him to transition out, but he has to leave. On two different occasions, he tries to go back and visit them, but he could not. The Bible doesn't tell us why. It could have been health. It could have been other reasons. We don't know why he could go back and visit them personally, but he sends his protege, Timothy, to go. So Timothy goes and he visits the church of Thessalonica and he tries to figure out exactly what's going on to basically deliver them some encouragement from Paul. But he sees at that moment the spiritual temperature of the church and he brings that report back to Paul. Paul is, Paul is both ecstatic and encouraged, but he's also concerned. Because one of the things that the church have formulated in being, again, a younger church, they didn't have the scriptures to reference, 
they became confused regarding the second coming of Christ. They believe, and the Apostle Paul himself believed, that Christ really was going to come back during his lifetime. Praise the Lord, he did not. So we have an opportunity now to, to live and share the gospel. But he believed that Christ was going to come back. Now, it is proper for us to believe that in the imminent return of Christ, in other words, we believe that at any moment Christ could come back. But to say that he's going to come back at this particular time, on this particular day, like Harold Camping and others, would be wrong to say, because the Bible says that not even the Son of God knows when the return of Christ will be. But the, unfortunately, the congregation, being younger in their faith, took that to mean that they no longer had to live in their responsibilities in which God has equipped them to live because Christ is coming back at any moment. It's like, uh, you know how it is, like you go on vacation, right? It's like the last day you're at work before you go on vacation. We know good and well, you ain't getting anything done that day before you go on vacation. You're already in vacation mode, unless you're a boss of a company, it's a little bit different, you're gonna get it done. But that vacation mode starts early. It's like the whole entire like last two months of school for those students that know they're getting ready to go on summer break, College students, you're leaving in a couple of weeks. Maybe you've already checked out. All right, that's what's going on with the church. I'm not living for the Lord. I mean, they weren't in sin, but they weren't doing what they were supposed to do as Christians because they believe God's coming back at any moment. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter in order to clarify that. And you can really sum it at, at this way. In the, the book of 1 Thessalonians is an exhortation to continue to live for God in light of the imminent return of Christ. And so he pens this letter to the church. And again, this report back from the Apostle Paul, is, or from, from Timothy, is not entirely bad about the church. He, he writes this whole entire first letter to thank them for their faith. As common with the letters of Paul, Paul begins this letter to the church of Thessalonica with a greeting. In fact, the greeting constitutes this entire first chapter. It serves two purposes. First, it provides a profile for the readers of the type of church that Thessalonica is. This is the profile of the church. Secondly, it was a reminder to the Thessalonians of God's grace in saving those within the church. And so for our time together this morning, as we really look at this as being an intro to the book, we're going to paint a profile of the church as delivered in this whole entire first chapter, these 10 verses here of chapter 1. And it's going to serve two purposes for us. It's going to give us a better understanding of this church so that we can understand the context of this letter. And it's going to serve for us as a reminder of what a genuine church looks like regarding the word of God as God lays it out. None of this or none of these points that we'll share this morning consists of any new information. To be honest with you, as one of the reasons why um, a lot of times 1 Thessalonians isn't preached through like a lot. Like it's not like Romans. It's not like First and Second Corinthians, because those have a lot of lengthy arguments when it comes to the Christian faith. First Thessalonians isn't that. It is a very practical letter, but obviously it's contained in the Word of God, so therefore it's beneficial to us. So the information that you're going to hear this morning as you read chapter 1 is not new to, to, to most of you. But it is a good reminder for us as a church body. This is what God has called us to be as a church. And so first off, let's look at this. The first point here this morning we have to understand is that the church is owned by God. Owned by God. See, Pastor Brandon, that's like basic Christianity 101. And that is true. But so often do we forget that the church is ultimately owned by God. So therefore, our accountability is not to me but ultimately to God. I don't own the church. Praise the Lord, I don't own the church. I did not die for the church. I didn't do that. 
God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die, so therefore he is the only one that has the authority to have ownership of the church. Look at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, to the church of, the, in the, of Thessalonians, then he adds, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is crucial for us to understand this point, that it is not owned by any religious institution or any person, but solely God. Something so basic to our understanding, almost seems unnecessary to write, but Paul understood his audience. Again, being mostly Greeks, but having a portion of Jews within his church audience, one commentator says that since Paul's initial converts were Jewish, he made it unmistakably clear that this church was not a Jewish assembly, but rather one which gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God. And that understanding in and of itself unites the church together, both culturally and ethnically. It was not a Jewish church. It was a church owned by God. And so therefore, it should be multicultural. And so he adds that in there. The church uh, at Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God giving himself for the church. No death of man was sufficient to be the propitiation for God. And we talked about that last week. What does that term mean? The term propitiation means to satisfy or to avert the wrath of God. Okay? Jesus' blood was the only payment that satisfied the wrath of God. You see it up there on your screen. And Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26 says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is the only one that was satisfied the wrath of God. So therefore, Jesus is the only one that owns the church, or God is the only one that owns the church. The sacrifice of Jesus was the only one, the only thing that was sufficient. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, and on the screen, it says, Now it was not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Um, I'm going to share this with the church family because it's exciting, and I don't mean to embarrass him, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. But this past week, I had the opportunity to meet with Romeo. Romeo, this is his third Sunday here at church. Last week, at the end of the service, Romeo called upon Christ to be his Savior. Romeo, I mean, that's, I mean, that's huge. I mean, that's awesome. Romeo shared with me that he had grown up in church, and I, I love the analogy that he gave. I said, Romeo, like, you grew up hearing about God, like, these concepts of God you understood. Why weren't you a follower of God? In his own words, he said, because it's like you wake up every morning, and, like, you have your phone, and you look at your phone, but you take for granted the intricate details of that phone, and you never really make that phone, like, like yours, more or less. It's kind of how I was with God. I had all these thoughts about God and all these different things about God, but I never made that relationship with God my own. And I knew that I was a sinner and I had a need of a Savior. And so I called upon Christ to be my Savior. This past week, we talked about that word. We, we went from salvation. We started talking about imputation, right? Like, we're going to go like big doctrinal words here. So I explained that. And I said, the awesome part about salvation is this. 
I said, you know what the word imputation means? And I didn't realize this, but I was talking to Alina before, and I use that like in science, right? That's like, I'll let her explain that part later. But the word in itself, imputation, what that means is because of what Jesus has done for us in his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice, when we receive him, the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus has been placed upon us, dirty, rotten sinners, so that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the righteousness of Jesus because his righteousness, Jesus, was imputed upon us. We were made righteous because of Jesus, and this is exactly what Paul says back in Romans. The church as a whole, globally, is comprised of people that have the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus upon them. They are genuine followers of Christ. And the Apostle Paul reminds them of that. You are the church of our Father, not of Paul. I planted you, which was an issue that happened um, in one of the other churches. Some people say, I'm of Apollos and I have Paul. Paul says, that's the, the craziest thing I've ever heard. You're not of either of us. We're just men teaching. You are of God. He's the one that sent his son and died on the cross for us. So he is the one that owns. Now, the resurrection provided proof, as we talked about last week, that God had accepted the sacrifice of his son. But again, there's some weird things that are said in scripture that's like weird to us in our Eastern way of thinking. And the Bible talks about the church being the bride of Christ. Like, what is that? Like, I'm married to Jesus. Like, what does that mean? Well, it's important for us to understand that within the the, East, the Eastern, I talked about us being Eastern, we're Western, the Eastern context way back in the day. And we've talked about this in church before, but I want to remind us again. And the scripture in the Bible times, it talks about three different stages within the Jewish marriage. You have the betrothal, and then you have the, the festival or the, the, the ceremony itself, and then you ultimately have the consummation of the marriage. Okay, So if you were to go back to the story with um, Mary and Joseph, okay, Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married. They were betrothed to be married. All right? That betrothal period is more serious than our engagement period. And for all intents and purposes, they were looked at by the community as being married, but they did not have the physical, I guess you could say, benefits of that marriage yet. That did not take place. And so from a community standpoint, they were married, but they never consummated their marriage. That was the betrothal period. And so when uh, Mary became pregnant with Jesus, it was looked at by the community that she committed adultery on her husband, even though they had never consummated their marriage, which is another reason why it was so important for, for Mary to continue to remain um, a, a, without being a man until after Jesus is born. Okay, so take that concept, those three stages, and apply that to our Christian walk. We as Christians right now, the church as a whole, we are in the betrothal period of, with Jesus. Like we have not, our marriage has not been consummated yet, but for all intents and purposes, we have been paired up and married to Jesus. That's why when Jesus Christ comes back, the Bible talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. When he takes his church and removes it from earth and brings them up to heaven, the Bible says that we will participate together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the festival that will take place in which our relationship, our union with Jesus will be officially consummated. We will have a glorified body. There will be no more sin. And we will be officially married to Jesus. Okay, you apply that to the church here. We are in this betrothal engagement period, which again goes back to the fact that the church in and of itself is owned by God. And so the Apostle Paul makes it absolutely clear. In verse 3, he says it again. He says, patience of hope. What does he say? In our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds, in the sight of our God and Father. Paul further adds, I love this in verse 4, and this will make the whole 
Arminianism, Calvinism, like blow up, but Paul uses that term, knowing beloved brethren, what does he say? Your election by God. And I've said this time and time again. I'm not here to get into this debate because um, I think a lot of it is just, honestly, just it can be a distracting point, but here are the facts. <laughs> if you are a follower of Christ, you are the elect. Just put it that way. If you are a follower of Christ, the church as a whole has been chosen by God to fulfill a specific purpose. It is not our job to figure out how that process works and how that comes to be and the tension between man's free will and the sovereignty of God. We aren't to figure that out. We are just to proclaim the gospel. And those that come to Christ, hey, they were the elect of God. The Bible says that the church itself was the chosen, the elect of God. How awesome is it to know that the church, us as followers of Christ, have been chosen by God? Like it wasn't like an accident we just stumbled into our faith. We have been chosen by God for a specific purpose. How awesome is that to know that we've been chosen on purpose? That's probably the most comforting thing you could ever, that is the most comforting thing that you could ever hear. And the Apostle Paul makes it absolutely clear. You, as a church, you have been chosen by God. All right, I'm going to lay all that out, that's what he says. And then moves on to the second here, the second reminder here that we see here this morning, and that is this. Number two, the church is comprised of genuine disciples of Christ. We said this before. Um, I've seen some churches out there that say that all are welcome to come to the Lord's table. All right, anybody that's at church here, you're all welcome to observe the Lord's table. That is not biblical because the Lord's table is not for anyone that comes to church. The Lord's table is for the church globally, genuine disciples of Christ. Now, we welcome all into our church with the hopes of sharing the gospel and then they become added to the kingdom of God, the church globally. But the church itself is made up of genuine disciples of Christ. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now let's start with that phrase, our gospel. Does that make like your like Christian like alarm go off? Whoa, whoa, our gospel? Like what? What is he saying here? The Apostle Paul is saying that my teaching with 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 the gospel isn't what I came up with, but he's saying our gospel to show the fact that he has received the gospel of Jesus Christ. So therefore, the gospel that has been offered is not just some arbitrary term. It's, it's like he's a follower of Christ, so it's our gospel. He uses that term our to indicate that he is writing to a group of believers. This is the gospel that has saved us. This is the power that has saved us and made us new creatures in Christ. Paul then describes the avenue in which way they received the gospel. What did they do? They heard it. They accepted it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit gave them assurance based upon their newfound faith. And that brief statement describes the journey one takes when coming to faith. We talked about this during our prayer time this morning. But the Bible says that first off, in order for a person to receive Christ, they have to hear the gospel. Some of you have heard the terms general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is the term in which describes God revealing himself through creation. So if you were to walk outside and, and somebody was to walk outside and they were to see all the different, well not here, but go west a little bit, see all the mountains and see all the trees and uh, for scientists that are in here, again, Romeo, biology major, he wants to become a, a neurosurgeon. That's off to him. That's awesome. <laughs> but, but, but looking at all the complexities of our body and seeing, like, how in the world, like, we just don't form into that. Like, there has to be some sort of intelligent design behind that in order for our body to function the way it does. 
So that's, that's somebody looking at that and coming to the conclusion that there must be a greater being outside of myself in order to explain this. It's because of general revelation that you have all these other religions. Because people are searching for a God, because we've been created to have that longing first off, and they're searching for something to answer those questions, and so what do they do? They make up their own God. That's general revelation, God revealing himself through creation. Somebody cannot receive Christ or get saved through general revelation only. You have to have special revelation come into play. Special revelation is God revealing the plan of salvation through his word. But the Bible has, and God has set it up so that he has designed our, uh, the, 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 the fallible, broken messengers such as ourselves to be the ones to go out and proclaim the truth so that people through our teaching and our faithfulness and through the, ultimately the power of the Holy Spirit can receive Christ. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17, talk about this. It's on your screen. Paul says, for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise God. But then he asks this question. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Okay, that does not mean that I'm the only one that goes and shares the gospel. All right, preacher, that, that encompasses all Christians because we all have that responsibility. How shall they preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord... Who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God has designed it so that we go out and we share the gospel with those that are seeking. And sometimes those that aren't even seeking, they may not want to hear it, but we are still commanded to share. And we leave the working up to God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul, going back to verse 5 here in 1 Thessalonians, says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. So he's saying that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that you were saved. Paul then describes their decision in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That term there, much affliction, describes the event that transpired from the very beginning of the formation of the church. Hold your finger here and go back to Acts chapter 17. We're going to continue to read what happened here at the church. Okay? He recognizes that you have received the word in much affliction, but you continue to persevere through the joy of the Holy Spirit. Again, as a testament that they are genuine followers of Christ. Look at verse, uh, verses 5 through 9 of Acts chapter 17. It says, But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to brought them out to the people. But when they did not find them, looking for Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, and that is Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What happened here? The Jews that were obviously bitter against what was happening by the spreading of the gospel goes to the people, and they convince the people that these men who have turned the world upside down are basically creating an insurrection against the government and saying that we should serve Jesus as being the only one and not the governor, the ruler himself, not Caesar. 
which is completely false because Jesus says that we do have to show respect and we do honor and we pray for our president, our ruler. But in order to uh, convince the crowd what was happening, they lie. And so the crowd goes in and takes this brand newly formed church, brings them out to all the different people and begins to attack them. Romeo and I had this conversation again this past week. I said, Romeo, I want you to understand something. There is nothing that Satan can do to take away your salvation. I know some churches believe that you can lose your salvation, but Jesus makes it pretty clear in Romans chapter 10 as an example that once we receive Christ, it says it up on your screen, that God, I could put it this way, places us in his hand of protection, and there's nothing that you or anyone else could say or do or Satan himself can say or do to pull you away from that. That is called eternal security. We cannot lose your salvation. But I said to Romeo, you better believe that Satan's going to do whatever he can to prevent you from impacting anyone else, and that's for sure. Because he doesn't want to take the good news in which you've received for your life and have anyone else hear that or receive that. And so the attacks are going to come along strong, and they're going to come hard. Now, we've talked about this in church multiple times before, right? It's every time we make a decision to follow Christ, it's like, bam, here comes the attacks. Like every time we make a decision to follow Christ, I'm going to, I'm going to give the Lord more of my time, more of my money, whatever, fill in the blank. And it's like as soon as we do that, boom, there goes our job. Or there goes my physical ability, whatever, fill in the blank. It's like as soon as we follow God, and then what do we do? Like sometimes if our faith's not strong, we get mad at God about it. God, I followed you. Well, all of a sudden now are you allowing this to happen or you making this happen? God doesn't do anything evil, but he does allow things to happen in order to mold us and shape us and conform us in the image of his son. But this newly formed church, they're following God now. I mean, they're, they're excited, and all of a sudden, bam, they're persecuted for their faith, like right off the get-go. Like they didn't even go through a discipleship course yet. And they were even brought, and their faith is being tested. And they stood strong, which was testament that they were filled, the church was filled with genuine disciples of Christ. And you see this in the parable of the seeds, which he explains all those that hear the gospel and some respond in excitement. You've seen that happen. They respond in excitement. I love this. And the moment something hard comes into their life, it's as if like they never made a decision to follow Christ. Now, we can't see somebody's heart, but that generally means that that decision wasn't genuine to begin with. Because a genuine follower of Christ will persevere till the end. Their life will show that they are genuine followers of Christ because they keep at it, they keep going, they keep pursuing. And this church showed that in their response to persecution. But here's the final point here. They received the word in much affliction and had the joy of the Spirit. This made a tremendous impact upon those that were watching the church, which leads us to our third and final characteristic that he discusses in this first chapter. The church impacts the world for Christ. Why were they persecuted so intensely? Paul explains this in verse 7 back in 1 Thessalonians. He says, So that you can become or you became examples to all Macedonia, a Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Don't miss out on what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying is, yes, I've been commissioned to go out and preach the gospel, but your testimony was so bright that I went into these areas and didn't have to convince people that Jesus Christ was truly God because your testimony already showed them that he truly was. How awesome is that? So why were you persecuted for your faith? So that you can be a bright, shining billboard of God's grace to all those that are watching. 
And church of Thessalonica, I praise God for your faithfulness. And you can almost see Paul, the Apostle Paul saying in a loving, respectful way, thank you for making my job easier and living out your life so that when I go and I approach people about this gospel, they could say, listen, that church that the, the whole world was against, I want what they have. The Apostle Paul says, okay, here, here it is. I don't have to convince you because it's all right here. You already want what you've already seen them display. But not only did their lifestyle impact their community, because so often do we think, okay, I'm going to live for Christ, and like those that are searching, those that are on the brink of salvation, they're going to be blessed, and that is true. You better believe that you're also impacting those that are persecuting you. Going back to Acts chapter 17, verses 6 through 7, I love it what it says here. It says, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. And what did they cry out? These disciples? No, 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 no. They literally said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Their enemies recognized that there was something different about them. And I want to close with this thought right here. If we get nothing else out of this introductory chapter, I want us to get this one thing. I pray that the world will look at the chapel, or at least the community of, of Chapel Hill Baptist, and come to the same conclusion that they did with the church in Thessalonica, that they would see us. Maybe we're a little weird, because Christians usually are weird if you're going to bear that to the world. And they would respond to us as, those that have turned Chapel Hill upside down, this is what they're doing. Whether they come to Christ or not, like that, again, that's, that's God's work, not us. But our testimony would be so bright that people would say, people would say, Hunter, that guy that turned the world upside down, it's not anything about Hunter in and of itself. It's the shining light that God is revealing or the Hunter is revealing in his life, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer for us here at the chapel. And I am so excited to be able to dive in to see what the Apostle Paul says in this letter to Thessalonica.